Well, today, once again, we're returning to our sermon series, Humble Christmas, as we have been exploring the humility that Christ showed in becoming one of us and living among us, and then, of course, eventually dying for us and then conquering death by being raised from the dead. Um, So, you know, one of the things we've been talking about is who is great among us? You know, how, how do we measure greatness? How do we live a great life? You know, what should we be striving for as people? Where should our time and our money and our effort and our energy should, where should those things be, be going? Um, you know, I think we all are kind of born with this desire to want to be great. I've yet to ask a little kid you know, what do you want to do with your life? You know, no, no, none of them have told me I want to be a criminal or I want to spend my life in jail or I want to be a couch potato or, you know, everybody, I think we have this desire. We're born with this desire to make an impact. Now, somewhere along the line, you know, we can get jaded and we can start to, you know, just struggle in life. And so I think that fire inside of us can be dimmed a bit and it can be you know, brought low, but I, but I think we have a desire to want to make an impact. I think we all aspire to greatness, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with aspiring to greatness. I think where we go wrong often is we have um, a wrong definition of what greatness is, and so what happens is we're aiming at the wrong target. We're trying to hit the wrong bullseye. And I think this is precisely what the enemy wants. You know, the enemy has no problem with us, you know, chasing after greatness as long as our definition of greatness isn't the right one. He's fine with us working hard, being disciplined, even doing good things, even succeeding so long as we're aiming at the wrong destination. Francis Chan, he's a Christian author, he has said this, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that really don't matter. And I think that's what the enemy wants, right? He wants us putting all of our effort and and energy into getting to a destination that really doesn't matter in the end. You know, before you set out on a journey, it's really important that you know the destination, right? That's critical. If you don't know the destination, you're going to spend a lot of wasted time and energy getting nowhere or even worse, getting to a place that is a bad place. And so we have been told this message, I think, from our culture of what greatness is and what greatness is all about and what we should be shooting for. I think we're bombarded with our culture's message of greatness through TV, through movies, through magazines, through advertisements, sports, you name it. And and the message that our world tells us is that if you want to be somebody, if you want to be great, if you want to have an impact then you need to acquire a bunch of nice stuff, or you better get fit, physically fit. 
you better obtain friends in high places. You better have a high-profile job that pays well. If you're a coach, your team better win. If you're an educator, your students better score high on their test. If you're a parent, your kids better turn out great. You know, the more powerful you are, the more stuff you own, the more you run around with uh, the influential, the popular, the more skilled you are, the more successful you are in the business world, the coaching world, the education world, whatever the, you know, the world is that you uh, function in, the greater you are. And I think this definition of greatness is very anti-God. Would you agree? It's all about me making a name for myself. It's all about me achieving my own sense of self-worth apart from God. But this is the message that our culture tells us. And it's a message that is not only anti-God, but it distracts us from where real greatness is really found. Um, and it, is, uh, it leads us to two traps, all right? So if we're following this kind of way of being great, either we're going to be deflated or we're going to be prideful. We're going to be, if, if we don't measure up to what we think that measure of greatness is, and if we run into somebody who's prettier than we are, who has more money than we do, or is more successful than we are, then we're, we're going to feel deflated, right? But if we get to the place where we meet our goals and what our measure of greatness is, then we're going to feel prideful because look, look, at we di- look at what we did. Look at what we achieved. Look at the life I've made for myself. Look what my intellect and my strength has done. I am great. And this is why we need the scriptures because the scriptures reorient us to the truth of what real greatness is. Who are the great ones among us? The great ones among us are those special people who see themselves and realize that they're utterly dependent on God and who labor to bring blessing to others with the motive just to love God and to love the people they're serving. Those are the great ones among us. They serve simply to love God, simply to love other people, with the recognition that it's only by God's grace that they can even do so, and it's only by God's grace that they can do, you know, serve God and love other people without becoming deflated or, or prideful. These are the great ones. This sermon series that we've been working through, it really has been dedicated uh, to helping us see Jesus' greatness, that he is the greatest humble servant this world has ever seen. You know, we start out by looking at Jesus' humble roots. We then looked at Jesus' humble birth. And today, we're going to look at how Jesus' humble life exhibited his humility. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And uh, we're going to see how this just shows us Jesus' humility. So let me pray, and then we'll check out the passage. So let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and for this opportunity to worship you, uh, the greatest one, 
Um, Lord, you are the the best picture that, that we can possibly have of what it means to be a humble servant, of what it means to be great. We thank you that uh, you chose to serve us, that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for the people that are sitting in this very room. Lord, as we look at uh, this passage of Scripture this morning, we realize we are dependent on you and your spirit and your grace to teach us, and not only to teach us so that we can become smarter, but to transform us so that our life in action and in deed can more resemble you as a humble servant. So, Lord, we love you. Thank you that you're with us now. Speak to our hearts. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. All right, so let me read the passage to you, and then we'll talk about it, all right? So Matthew 4, verses 1 through 17, actually 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights... Afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into, there, uh, took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, or said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So you may be wondering, as I read this passage, what does this passage have to do with emphasizing and highlighting Jesus' humble life? Well, let me give you some context, and then I'll give you some explanation, and then, Lord willing, it'll all make sense, right? So that's my prayer. So first, a bit of context. So um, Jesus, when he goes into the wilderness, he's 30 years of age, right? He's 30 years old. And for 30 years, he really lived a life of obscurity. And that's why when you ask the kids, what was his life like? Well, we really don't know. We really don't know what his life was like before age 30. The scriptures just tell us about his birth, and then it tells us about this event in Jesus' life when he was 12 years old, and his parents lose him in Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple, and he's talking with the religious leaders, and they're impressed by the God knowledge that Jesus has. But beyond that, We really don't know much about him. We know it's probably highly likely that he worked with his dad, Joseph, who was either a carpenter or a stonesman. And so that, in in and of itself, I think tells us a lot about Jesus' humble life. That for 30 years, 
people really didn't even know about him. For 30 years, he lived in obscurity. For 30 years, he, he worked with his dad doing very labor-intensive work. The creator of the universe, living, he comes onto the scene as a human, and then for 30 years, he's just there, and, and there's, you know, he's just in obscurity. What kind of king that does that? Well, of course, a very, very humble king. Now, at age 30, it's time for Jesus to embark on his public ministry, right? So it's time for Jesus to come out of obscurity. And the first thing that happens to, to, to really kick off Jesus' ministry is he is baptized. And Matthew 3 records this. He's baptized by John the Baptist. And other than Jesus' crucifixion, it's Jesus' baptism. It's the only other event in Jesus' life that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And the reason why it's mentioned in all four of the Gospels is obviously because it's really important. When John brings Jesus up from the waters of the Jordan, we get this window into the, tri the life of the triune God and how they exist in loving community. Because at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. You hear the Father's voice from heaven saying, this is my son, you know, in whom I am well pleased. And you have Jesus, you know, being baptized in obedience to the Father. And so we have this beautiful picture of how the three-in-one God has always existed in love and community before the foundations of the world eternally. And then you need to know that this is so important that this is happening because of what is about to happen to Jesus Immediately, he goes into the wilderness. He's led into the wilderness where he's tempted directly by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you also need to know why this, was, this baptism moment was so important. Because Jesus' life, from the baptism onward, was going to go from bad to worse. He was going to um, be rejected. There, were, there would be attempts on his life. He would be betrayed. He would be living in poverty. He would experience grief and loss and torture. And then eventually he would finally face being killed and crucified. And so the difficulty starts right away for Jesus as he's just tossed. He's led out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. And here's what Satan attempts to do. This, is, this whole episode is Satan attempting to do this, and it is this. Satan tried his best to stop Jesus from living a life of humble service. That's what Satan was doing in the wilderness, trying to knock Jesus off of this path of being a humble servant. Why? Because... If Jesus lived a humble life of service that eventually included a sacrificial, atoning death for you and me, it would mean the final destruction of Satan and the salvation of you and me. And so Satan wanted to knock him off of this path. You know, Satan's greatest weapon against us is unforgiven sin. That's his greatest weapon against us because it's unforgiven sin that keeps us 
cut off from the living God, separated from the living God now and forever. Do you remember when uh, Jesus was with his disciples and he was telling his disciples, hey, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed? And, and you remember Peter, what he said? He said, far be it from, from you. Lord, this shall not happen to you. So in Peter's mind, he had no room in his brain for a suffering Messiah. He only had room in his brain. His worldview could only, it only had room for this conquering king, but not the suffering servants that Isaiah talks about. And you know what Jesus' response was to Peter in Matthew 16, 23? was this. Check this out. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. Satan was even working through the disciples, Jesus' closest, closest companions, to try and knock him off of this path of living a life of humble service. And here... We have in Matthew 4, right at the start, Satan trying to knock him off this path, right? So let's look at how exactly Satan in the wilderness attempted to convince Jesus to abandon the path of a humble life, of a humble service. So let's look at the first temptation. So here's the first temptation. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. So when the first temptation comes to Jesus, he's been uh, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So Matthew tells us he's hungry. I, you know, that's an understatement. I know if I don't eat like two meals in a day, if I skip two meals, like I can't focus, I get hangry, you know, hungry and angry, hangry. Um, I just can't even have a conversation. Like, I need crackers or something. So you can only imagine the intense hunger that Jesus must have felt. And that's what Satan likes to do, doesn't he? He likes to approach us. He likes to pounce on us in our weakness. When we're tired, when we're fatigued, when we're agitated, when we're sad. And notice what Satan attacks Notice right what he goes for. Satan attacks Jesus' identity in the Father's character. And this is why the baptism was so important. This is why Jesus in his humanity needed to be reminded of the fact that he was the Son of God whom the Father was well pleased with and loved because Satan was coming right for that identity. You know, in this temptation, Satan is saying, in effect, are you really the son of God? Are you sure that God loves you? Are you sure you heard him correctly at your baptism? Are you sure? And he's also attacking God's character. Are you sure God the Father can be trusted? Are you sure he's good? Look at you, you're out here all alone in the elements and you have no food and no water and you're hungry and tired. What kind of God, what kind of father would do that to you? If you're the son of God, you shouldn't have to suffer. 
If your father isn't providing for you and caring for you, take matters into your own hands. Take care of yourself. Take these stones and turn them into bread. Stop your misery. That's, of course, if you're able to, right? Sounds like how Satan worked on Adam and Eve in the garden, doesn't it? Satan uses the same tactics on us today. Even today, Satan, he attempts to attack us when we're weak. And he loves to plant seeds of doubt into our mind about our own identity in Christ and about the character of the Father. Satan loves to attack us there. The temptation, he tempts us with with the temptation to doubt the Father, the temptation to doubt God's goodness, his love, his plan, his care, his provision. The temptation to believe that God is holding out on us, right? That he really doesn't have our best in mind. Or if he does, he's not powerful enough to execute it. The temptation to seek our happiness and our gratification outside of God, outside of his will, especially if if God isn't acting as we think he should You know, the first Adam succumbed to these temptations, but not the second Adam. Jesus refused Satan's suggestion. And he responded to Satan with the truth of God's word. Deuteronomy 8.3 is what Jesus quoted. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus knew that a real, vibrant life was found inside the Father's will. Jesus knew it was trusting the Father to meet your needs in in God's perfect timing. That's where real life is found. Being one with the Father, trusting Him, being utterly dependent on the Father is where real joy is found, better better than any food that money can buy. And that's why Jesus said in John 4.34, I love this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so I ask you this morning, where have you been looking for life? Where have you been looking for life? Is it in physical pleasure or comfort? Is it doing whatever your body feels like doing in the moment? Is it in a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Is it in a a child? Is it in career success? Is it a nice home or a nice car? Is it vacations? Is it retirements? Where are you looking for life? I also want to ask you, how is, is Satan tempting you to doubt your identity in Christ? Is he tempting you to doubt the Father's character? Temptation number two, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. So the first temptation didn't work to knock Jesus off of the path of a humble service. So Satan tries again, and guess what? He tries a different tactic, and he uses scripture because Jesus used scripture. And so, all right, so if that's what Jesus wants to do, Satan will now use scripture. And, of course, he'll twist it. That's what he does, right? So Satan, what he does is he takes Jesus to Jerusalem, and we don't know if he actually took Jesus there, if this was a vision. 
and he, and he puts Jesus on the highest part of the temple. And if it's the part of the temple that overhangs the Kidron Valley, it would be 300 feet in the air. And Satan tries to get Jesus to jump. Now why? Why would Satan want Jesus to jump? Well, the temple was the center of life in Jerusalem. It was the center of... Uh, of, of life for the Jewish people is a highly populated area. And most scholars that I have read, they have stated that the reason why Satan wanted Jesus to jump is because the angels would have come and rescued Jesus and it would have proven to everyone who was watching that he was the Messiah. And then it would cause people to, to worship Jesus. And so Satan's argument probably went something like this. Jesus, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Do it. Then God the Father will be forced in. He'll have to save you because Psalm 91 says that he'll protect his people and rescue his people. And so if you do it, you'll force God's hand. He'll have to rescue you. Everybody will see angels rescuing you. And then they'll believe you're the Messiah and worship you. So jump off, jump off the temple. And once again, Jesus responds with scripture by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not tempt the Lord. You know, Jesus knew that to manipulate God the Father to accomplish your own agenda was sin. And even if that meant then people would recognize that he was the Messiah and, and, and that they would worship him, even if it meant a fast track for people to recognize that, that wouldn't involve suffering, Jesus didn't want any part in that because he was not going to try and manipulate the Father. And plus, he already knew that the Father cared for him and protected him. He didn't need to, you know, have test God, God the Father to see if he would uh, actually rescue him. He knew that jumping from the temple was not a part of the Father's plan to bring redemption to the world. And so Jesus resisted that option. And so I asked you the question this morning, are you being tempted to manipulate God the Father today? We talked about this a little bit in adult Sunday school, but I think as Christians, sometimes we have this, this hidden kind of subconscious kind of thing that operates in our heart where we believe that if I just read my Bible enough or if I just pray enough or just serve in the church enough, then God's going to have to be good to me. He has to bless me. He has to treat me good. And we're trying to manipulate God the Father. We just want his stuff. We just want his benefits, but we really don't want him. And so I asked you this morning, are you trying to manipulate God, the Father, in any way? You know, Jesus was just so surrendered and so trusting of the Father and so concerned with the Father's glory. That's how he lived and operated. Temptation number three. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So the first two tactics didn't work to knock Jesus off the path of humble service. And so Satan tries a third. And so Satan takes Jesus to a really high mountain. 
And from the mountain, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says to Jesus, hey, I will give you all of these kingdoms and all of their glory if you will just fall down and worship me. You know, the scriptures call Satan the ruler of this world, the, the God of this age. 1 John 5 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so there was some legitimacy to Satan's offer. There was. And though this may be true, that there was some legitimacy to this offer, God had already promised Jesus the kingdoms of the world. God had already promised Jesus that he would have all authority and power over everything, everywhere, that that would be given to him. So why would Satan's offer be tempting then? If Jesus already knew God promised him all the kingdoms of the world, why would Satan's offer be tempting to Jesus? Well, the Father's plan for Jesus to gain all power and authority over everything, everywhere, was through the path of humble service that involved a cross. Satan's offer was have it all without the suffering. That was Satan's offer. Satan was promising Jesus the crown without the cross. Satan was offering Jesus glory and power immediately without having to become a humble servant. Here's Jesus' response to Satan. Matthew 4, 10, and 11. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Jesus' mind was made up. He was going to worship the Father, live a life obedient to the Father, no matter the cost, no matter what suffering would come his way. He was going to seek the Father's glory, not his own. He wasn't going to try and manipulate the Father. He wasn't going to take any shortcuts. He wouldn't use his divine attributes to relieve himself of suffering or temptation. He, he would allow himself to become hungry, thirsty, anxious, homeless. He wouldn't seek his own personal pleasure and comfort. Satan then departed. But it wouldn't be the last time that Satan would tempt Jesus. It happened all throughout Jesus' humble life of humble service. As I mentioned, from this point on, his life went from bad to worse. Jesus' life did. Jesus lived such a humble life that Hebrews 14 or 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in every way just as we are. Think about that. Creator of the universe allowed himself to be tempted in every way that we are. Have you been rejected? If you've been rejected, Jesus has been rejected. Have you um, been betrayed? Well, Jesus knows what it's like. Have you lost someone that you love? Well, Jesus knows what it's like. Are you anxious? Jesus knows what it's like. Are you experiencing temptation? Jesus knows what it's like. Have you been homeless? Jesus knows what it's like. Have you been abused? Jesus knows what it's like. 
Are you exhausted? Jesus knows what it's like. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, but he was without sin. He did not sin, meaning he never stepped off the path of humiliation and suffering, even though along the way Satan did everything he possibly could to knock him off that path. Even, like Satan was so relentless that even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, Satan was tempting Jesus through the words of the crowd. Check out the words of the crowd. If you are the Son of God, sounds like the wilderness, doesn't it? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Satan's doing everything he can to keep him off that cross. And if Jesus would have given in at any point along the way, Satan would have won the war. If he would have given in at any point, there would be no singing joy to the world this time of year, in any time of the year. There would be no singing about fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, repeating that sounding joy. There would be no singing about sin and sorrow, no longer growing in thorns, no longer infesting the ground. And Jesus returning to make blessings, the blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Just winter forever. No hope of spring. Just darkness forever. You see, Jesus stayed on the cross. Satan could not knock him off the path of humble service. Why? Because Jesus was intent on making himself poor so that you could become rich. Jesus lived a humble life so that you could live an exalted life. Jesus died a humble death so that you could live. He stayed on the cross. Remember how I said that Satan's greatest weapon against us is unforgiven sin? Well, when we're connected to God the Father and the Spirit through faith in God the Son, Jesus' death is credited to our account. His blood is counted uh, towards blotting, towards our sin, to, to blotting that sin out. And his perfect life is counted to as if our life, as if we've lived his perfect, righteous, perfectly obedient life to God the Father we're no longer separated from God. We're no longer destined to pay the penalty that our sin deserves. We're no longer destined to spend an eternity in hell, which is Satan's space. We are rescued from Satan's kingdom of darkness and brought into Christ's kingdom and family. And today, we get to remember, you know, the, the, the path that Jesus is humble life led to, that it ultimately led to a cross where he poured out his blood to blot out our sin, to give us new life, to restore us, to connect us to the Father, to adopt us into his family. And so this morning, I encourage you, if you have placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, like think about his humble life. Think about that he was never knocked off that path of humble service. I also encourage you, to think about if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Why not today? Why not this Christmas? Why not this be the year that you experience life 
with the God of the universe who loves you so much? Would you turn to him in repentance and faith? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you and for the Son and for the Spirit and for the willingness of all three of you to send the Son to become a human, to lead such a humble life of service that involved being tempted in every way so that he could rescue and save us, and so also so that we would have a Savior who we could know in, in the depth of our heart that he is a, a, a Savior that gets it because he's experienced it. And so we're thankful that, that he has been tempted in every way because we know when we go to him, we have a high priest that can relate, that understands, that knows the pain and suffering we've, we've, we are going through. We praise you that uh, Satan um, has no power over you, that you reign victorious, that you're coming in glory. Oh, glorious day. We look forward to it. Lord, as we partake in communion as a family, as your family, as your children, may our hearts be full of gratitude towards you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.